The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in the Old Testament today. The Old Testament, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9 to begin with. So you may have a Bible on your phone or uh, your app, and uh, you can open that up to Isaiah chapter 6. We're doing a series for the month of December. We're calling it uh, For Unto Us. Last week, we looked at waiting for the Messiah. This week, watching for the Messiah. Next week, welcoming this Messiah. And then in two weeks, we'll do worshiping the Messiah. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at waiting, uh, I'm sorry, watching for the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be with uh, these dear friends once again. Father, to come together to study your word, to look at it. And so we pray, Spirit of God, that you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Watching, watching. Uh, In a fit of marketing genius, someone came up with something just a few years ago that uh, most kids in America are watching for every day in December. Maybe your kids get up, look for them. Uh, My grandkids certainly do. In College Station, this person's name is Fly uh, with our daughter's house. It's Sammy in, uh, in Houston at our son's house. And when our grandkids get up, they do a search because they're watching, they're waiting, they're looking, they're longing to find what? Elf on the Shelf. I mean, that's it. How many of you have never heard of Elf on the Shelf? Raise your hand. Never heard of it. Raise your eye. I want to see. Go ahead. Never heard of Elf on the Shelf. You got to get a life if you raise your hand just now. Uh, that's the current phrase. I mean, in our culture, it's a huge deal. Mom and dad hide Elf on the Shelf throughout the house, and the kids, get, they're watching. They're watching to see where he is. They go looking. They go scouring the house. They go searching. And it's interesting. You can do a Google search if you go Elf on the Shelf ideas, and you can go all the way back to 2012, 12, 13, 14, 15, a number of things pop up. Uh, this is 2015. I love that. I love to lift. And so uh, here's Elf on the Shelf with uh, marshmallows and toothpicks. Uh, here's Elf on the Shelf hiding in between... Some of you jotting down ideas right now for the rest of the weeks, I know. Uh, you can just Google it up and find it. Uh, here's Elf on the Shelf uh, finding some M&Ms. Uh, here's Elf on the Shelf. Uh, I love this one. Uh, okay, time for confession. How many of you open an Oreo and eat the icing out of the middle? Let me see your hands. There you go. Uh, how many of you have never done that? You poor people, you. Uh, I, I love this. Here's Elf on the Shelf. Duct tape to the wall. So some dad decided he's going to do it, and uh, there he is. Uh, Elf on the shelf. Kids get up, they wait, they watch, they they search the house, they scour the houses. I mean, I I, I dare one of you dads to do this, take a picture and send to me this week. I'll pop it up for you next week. Just, I can't do it because duct tape will never be strong enough to hold me to a while, I guarantee you that. But, But watching, in the first century, there are a lot of people watching. They're watching for someone called the Messiah. Scripture tells us there was a messianic hope. Messiah means savior. So the people were looking for a savior of the world. Specifically within Israel at that time, they were under Roman occupation. King Herod was a guy who was over the Roman armies there. And so they were looking for Messiah, for savior. Their streets were occupied, their villages were occupied, their cities were occupied, and they they wanted things to change. And so all the way from the Old Testament prophets, actually all the way back from Genesis, if you weren't with us last week, they were watching, they were watching. So this morning, I want to look at uh, what they were watching for. We're going to look at uh, four things. The, the nation was watching. The nation of Israel was watching. We're going to see that people within the nation were watching certain groups, political parties, as well as religious parties. We're going to look at a family that was watching for the coming Messiah. Then we're going to look at two individuals watching for the coming Messiah. So we're going to begin with the nation that was watching. Nation that was watching. 
The text you have in your hands, or I'm going to pop it up on the screen in front of you, is a very familiar Christmas passage. Uh, Most of us can quote it. Why don't we read it together? Would you read with me? For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So when you look at that verse, there are a number of things to point out. First of all, this is, a, this is a child that's going to be born, whoever this Messiah is going to be. He's going to be a child that's born, a son who's given. So uh, it goes back to the concept of virgin birth. A child is born, that says humanity, a son is given. God is the one who gave this son. You give someone as a gift, and so the given is there. The other thing you'll see in this verse is when you look at the four couplets at the end, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, when you look at those four couplets describing who Messiah would be, Two of those things describe him as God. So whoever this Messiah is going to be is going to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. The two are mighty God, everlasting Father. Those are attributes of God. So whoever Messiah would be, when Messiah would come, the one thing about this Messiah, he would be a gift. He would be born of man and a gift given to man but he would also be mighty God and everlasting father. So somehow, whoever this person was going to be was going to be fully God, fully man. First 200% person ever, only 200% ever, one who would be fully God and fully man. That's what the Old Testament scriptures teach. So if you believe the Old Testament scriptures, this is who you're looking for. This is who you're looking for. The problem, though, is in the first century, because they were under Roman domination, the nation of Israel was struggling. They were dreaming of a day when they would be freed from domination, dreaming of a day when they'd be freed of oppression, dreaming of a day when they'd be freed of taxes. I mean, you got up every day and you walked the streets of your city, towns, villages, and they were controlled by Herod's men, and they hated you like you hated swine. You hated them, they hated you. They wanted to be back in their homeland, not in your homeland. They were in a strange place, living among a strange people. You didn't like them, they didn't like you. And so every day you were wishing God would free you from this. So maybe one day you go to the synagogue and you read the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah. And when you read that scroll, you come to this passage. And what this passage teaches you is God's going to send a son and he's going to be a mighty God, everlasting father. So they're going to be the same. He's going to be God in the flesh. And oftentimes we focus on that, but I think we miss what's in the middle. The government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. So if you're living in the first century, one of the things you're looking for is somebody who's going to have a new government. You see, a lot of times we throw rocks at those who are living in the first century and say, how could they miss Jesus? I mean, he performed miracles. He, he did all these works. He spoke words unlike anyone who had ever spoken. And when you put the words and works of Jesus together, you've got to ask, how could they see miracles? How could they hear these words and not believe in him? And one of the reasons is because they're looking for a different type of Messiah. They were looking for one who would free them from the governmental role of the Romans. And so they were looking for the one who would come to reign. In fact, you know what the next verse says? This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you read the next verse, it says this. It says, of the greatness of his what? What's it say? His government. In peace, there would be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So when you look at that, you can see from the circumstances of the first century, and you can see from the scriptures that they would be looking for someone who was of David's lineage who would escort in a new government. So you really can't fault them, if you will. When you look at the circumstances and you look at the scriptures and those two things come together, you can see and understand how they were looking for a political Messiah, a political savior, one who would come and save them from the Romans. 
And so many people have asked, how can a first century person not see the works of Jesus, hear the words of Jesus, and not believe in Jesus? Well, that's how it happened. You look at the circumstances that they were surrounded by, you look at the scriptures like this that promise one who's going to bring in a new government, and they were looking for a political messiah. They were looking for one who was going to free them, if you will. But before we throw rocks at them, put yourself and your family in their shoes or in their sandals. I mean, just do that for a second. We have nations in our world living on the domination of other nations, and the one thing they want to do is throw off the yoke of those governments so they can be free to live in their own land. So, so nothing has changed. And before we throw rocks at them in the first century, recognize that 2,000 years later, we have so much more. We have the completed canon, the Word of God, the Scriptures. We have Old and New Testament. We have not only that, we've got the testimony of 2,000 years of changed lives of folks like you and folks like me who've trusted Christ as our Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. So, so we have so much more than they had. We can look back and see the time when Jesus was on this planet. We can look back and see his works. We can look back and read his words. We can look back and see 2,000 years of church history in which lives have been radically changed to his glory. So we have all that. But people still reject Jesus. Even today, they'll say he's a good teacher, he's a good prophet, he's a good man. But Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the claim of either an idiot or one who, who fulfilled that claim to be God in the flesh. And so they missed Jesus in the first century. One author puts it this way. It's easy to criticize the contemporaries of Jesus for not believing in him. But when you realize how he came and what they were looking for, you can understand their skepticism. Jesus didn't, forget, Jesus didn't fit their concept of Messiah. He came from the wrong background. He had the wrong pedigree. He had the wrong hometown. No Messiah would come from Nazareth. That was the back alleys of, Jerusalem, of Israel. It was a small, hick, one-stop-like town. If we were going to do it today, what I like to say is he would be like Bubba from Buckholtz. I mean, you're going to trust Bubba from, Bubba from Buckholz to be the Savior? I mean, that's what we're talking about. And this guy goes on and he writes, he didn't fit their notion of a Messiah. I mean, he fed the masses with calloused hands of a carpenter. He raised the dead wearing bib overalls on a John Deere tractor hat. They expected kings and chariots from heaven, but what they got were sandals and sermons and a Galilean accent. So they missed the Messiah. And for 2,000 years, people have been rejecting Jesus since. Happened then, it happens now. Good man, good teacher, good rabbi, good prophet, good person. And he's saying, no, I am the son of God incarnate. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And he's been rejected since. Just an aside, just an aside, you heard me last week say, I love the holiday season. Just love the holiday season. I love the whole Christmas season, but I recognize for everybody that's not the case. I recognize for some this is a very difficult time. Some of you have dear family members who have passed away. Some of you come from families where things have split up and they're not right. Or some of you come, you want this Norman Rockwell experience and the expectations are so great, but it just doesn't happen. And for some of you, Christmas is a difficult season. For some of you, it's a, it's a painful season. You've experienced rejection, rejection by a spouse, a friend, a, a son, a daughter, a mom or dad or a fiancé or a boyfriend or girlfriend. Rejection, painful. I, I got this email from someone a few, a couple of years ago. It's when we were at the peak of fighting in Afghanistan. 
And uh, one of the soldiers uh, received a Dear John letter. He was devastated. This is a girl he hoped to go back. He had been dating. He hoped to go back and marry her. To add insult to injury, when he received the letter, his girlfriend wrote, please return my favorite picture myself because I would like to use that photograph for my engagement picture in the county newspaper. He was devastated. He's in Afghanistan fighting. His, his comrades saw what was happening, and so his buddies came to his defense. They went throughout the barracks. They collected pictures of all, the, all, all their girlfriends. They filled an entire shoebox with pictures of their girlfriends. The jilted soldier put them all in a shoebox and mailed the, the shoebox filled with these girls' pictures to his ex-girlfriend. He wrote a note. Please find your enclosed picture and return the rest. For the life of me, I can't remember which one you are. Rejection. I mean, it can cut deep, can it? I mean, it can cut really deep, but sometimes you got to go back. But, but here's the reality. For 2,000 years, our Savior has been rejected. Some of you have experienced rejection. You've experienced trials. You've experienced pain. In the midst of that, recognize you have a Savior you can turn to. Joseph Scriven was born in 1853, I think it was, and he grew up in a privileged family in Ireland, a wealthy family. He became interested in doing ministry in Canada, and so he moved to Canada. He fell in love, was engaged. The night before his wedding, his fiancée and several of her girlfriends went swimming in the lake, and she drowned. He was heartbroken. Within six months, he found out that his mom back in Ireland was dying. He went back to see her, and she passed away. Three years later, Scriven was engaged to another lady. And uh, three months before they were to be married, she died of pneumonia. I was reading it, and I think the moral of the story is you want to be engaged to this guy. But Scriven was heartbroken, pained. And so he sat down in a study one day and he wrote words of a poem that became a great old hymn of the faith that comforts many of us. And through the pain of losing two fiancés and his mom, he wrote these words, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. You think he knew grief? What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And you remember the last verse of that great hymn, Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? You don't think that man was cumbered with a load of care? Lived the rest of his life single, preaching the gospel, honoring Christ. And we sing that great hymn of the faith. And it speaks of the one who is our sympathetic high priest, the one who can comfort us in the midst of pain, in the midst of rejection. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been rejected by many. You have the opportunity today to trust him forever. <clears throat> so the nation had an ex a messianic expectation. They were looking for someone who would come and change the government. They wanted the Romans gone. Well, if you fast forward, there were different people within the nation in the first century. There were four major parties in the first century. Some were political, some were religious. The first one and the smallest one were the Essenes. The Essenes were guys who were separatists. The Essenes were spiritually binded. They went, they, they hated so much the worldliness that was taking place in the temple and in Jerusalem that they went to live in the desert. They separated themselves from the world. I, I mean, you remember when Jesus went in the temple and he turned over the money changes and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. 
And so the Jewish people are all about commerce. They weren't about following after the true God. So Jesus comes in and says, you've got it all wrong. Well, the Essenes saw this. And so what they did is they separated themselves from culture. They went and they lived outside of Jerusalem, literally in the deserts. And we'd been there. If it's where Masada is, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are, those were the Essenes. And so they separated themselves from the culture because of the worldliness of everything that was happening there. And they were looking for two messiahs. They were looking for a spiritual Messiah from the lineage of David, but they were also looking for, uh, I'm sorry, a a political Messiah from the lineage of David who would reign, but they're also looking for a spiritual Messiah from the lineage of Aaron, who was the first priest. And so they they thought maybe God was going to send two Messiahs to the earth. If you read about the Essenes in the first century, that's what they were looking for. Political Messiah, religious Messiah. One from the line of David, one from the line of Aaron. Then there was another group, the Herodians, as they suggest in the name, those who followed Herod, Herodians, Herodians. These are the ones who decided if we follow after Herod, he will bless our nation. And so for political expediency, they became followers of Herod and their Messiah was Herod. They were not looking outside of that. They figured Herod could bring peace to the land. Herod was powerful. Rome was powerful. And so they supported Herod. The problem with doing that, it put them in, in, in complete contrast and opposition to another group called the Pharisees. And we're going to talk about them in a second, but the Herodians and Pharisees would get along about like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton right now. I, I mean, it's like cats and dogs, you name it. It's like Longhorns and Aggies, you name it, whatever it is. And, and so there's this complete hatred of one another till they had a common enemy. When they had a common enemy, then they united. As a grandparent, I can relate to that. I decided the reason why uh, grandkids and grandparents get along so well, we've got a common enemy, the parents. <laughs> and that's what happened back then. They, they had a common enemy, and that common enemy was Jesus. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So you have two enemies, two groups who are arch enemies, and they come together for a specific reason. The scriptures say the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus, the Herodians plotted to kill Jesus. And so they joined forces. Now, don't miss this. What were the Herodians looking for? They were fowls of Herod. They were looking for the right person to sit on the throne. They were looking for political rightness, for political power. They were trusting in a man. I think it's incumbent upon us in a year of election coming up in just a few months to recognize our hope and our trust is not in a man, but it's in our God. Amen? It's not in, a, in, in political refuge. In fact, the psalmist says that. If you believe in the Old Testament, and, and we do, what you read in the Psalms, the 20th Psalm, verse 7, some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, some boast in the name, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. And then in Psalm 118, we read these words in verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. But the Herodians decided there's a man that could save them, and that man was Herod, and so they became followers of Herod. They wanted to follow that king. So their trust was in a man rather than God. Then there were two other groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are very familiar names to those of us that study the New Testament. I mean, when you look at these names, you know, now, let me ask you a question. How many times in the Old Testament do you read about the Pharisees and Sadducees? Not a trick question, I want you to think about it. From Genesis to Malachi, how many times do you read the name Pharisee? From Genesis to Malachi, how many times do you read the name Sadducee? 
Not once. You're thinking, really? That's right. You don't read about those religious groups until New Testament. It's because the time between Malachi and Matthew, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, Matthew, first book of the New Testament, there's a 400-year period. And it's during that 400-year period that the Essenes, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and Pharisees come to fruition. They, they come to being. The Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the supernatural, so they were not looking for a Messiah. They didn't believe there was a Messiah. The Pharisees were the religious legalists of the day. They wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a political Messiah. Really what they wanted was a Messiah to come along and tell them they were right because they knew they were right. The Pharisees always knew they were right. You know anybody like that? Anybody married anybody like that? Don't raise your hand. I like the young guy who, uh, he, an older guy said, well, how's your marriage going? I said, well, we've been married two years. He said, how's it going? Well, he said, I married Mrs. Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always, always Wright. <laughs> the Pharisees, the, the, they, they were interested more in a Messiah from the lineage of David who could bring the kingdom to earth. That's what they wanted. A spiritual, religious, and political kingdom. So you say, Gary, what's the point? The point I'm trying to make is, in the first century, there were those looking for Messiah, looking for a Savior. And there were some who weren't. Sadducees weren't looking. The Essenes were looking for a spiritual political guy. The Herodians weren't looking for a spiritual guy. They had their guy, Herod. And the Pharisees were looking for somebody to come and tell them how great they were. The same thing happens today. There are those who want a Savior who will bring them happiness. They want a Messiah who's going to bring them wealth. They want a Messiah who's going to give them health. They want a Messiah who's going to give them four keys to being a better parent. They want a Messiah who's going to tell them six ways to have a better self-esteem. But the Messiah came so that we could have eternal life. And I think it's really easy to fall in the same trap that these first century groups did unless we recognize, you know the word Christmas? The first letters are Christ. Christ is Christmas. Otherwise, we miss it, just like they missed it. And what we see is that Jesus came as a fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and fulfilled all that. He came as the 100% God-man, fully God, fully man. And as a result, he is the Messiah. He is the one who gave his life. John Stott, the great theologian, said this, Grace is God loving God, stopping God coming to the rescue. It's God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. So here's the reality of Christianity. God is personal. He's not distant, transcendent. He's a God who cares for you, who loves you, who offers you forgiveness for sin through Christ his Son. C.S. Lewis, the great scholar, said this, hostages in the hands of an evil captor yearn for freedom. So if you're a POW, you yearn for freedom. At the appointed hour, a loving father left the ransom. That ransom was a bundle wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. As we said last week, you can't look at the cradle without seeing the cross. You can't look at Bethlehem where Jesus was born without going to Jerusalem where he died on your behalf. Finally, God came to dwell with men so that men eternally might dwell with God. Does God want you to have a good marriage? Sure, he does. Want you to have a good self-esteem? In him, he does. Does he want you to be happy? Does he want you to 
In him he does. But the primary reason he came, make no mistake about it, is so you could have forgiveness and experience eternal life forever. Well, there was a messianic expectation among the nation, among these different religious groups. There's a couple found in Luke chapter 1. If you look in your Bibles in Luke chapter 1, his name is Zechariah, her name is Elizabeth. They're an older couple. They're advanced in years, the scriptures tell us. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 1, it's quite interesting. Uh, Their hearts are full, but their arms are empty. They're barren. They can't have children. I I can only imagine the emotions that took place, the private pain that would bubble forth. The old man would confidently reassure his beloved that God can be trusted. It it says in verse 7, they had no children. Elizabeth was barren. She was advanced in age. Uh, He selected their 18,000 priests in Jerusalem in Old Testament, New Testament times, 18,000. One priest would be selected one time a year to enter into the Holy of Holies where he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. One time in your lifetime, you'd be chosen to be that priest. This is Zechariah's day. Zechariah's day, he's chosen to be that guy, one of 18,000 priests. So he has this opportunity. When he gets in there, though, a strange thing happens. If you look at verse 11, he went in and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar. And Zechariah was troubled and he saw him and fear gripped him. You bet it did. You go in to make the offering and all of a sudden an angel stands to you. And what does the angel say? The same thing angels always say when they appear. His first words are what? Don't be afraid. How many times have you heard me say, if an angel tells you not to be afraid, you need to be trembling right there. I mean, Gabriel appears to Mary. His first words to Mary, fear not. Angel appears to the shepherds. The skies are lit up with all these angels. And the first thing they say, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Three times the angels appear in the first three chapters and all times and don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Be scared to death. The angel appears to Gabriel. I mean, Gabriel appears to to Zechariah and he says, uh, your prayers have been heard. Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Uh, don't be afraid. Your petition has been heard. This is verse 13. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. And, and how does he respond? Zechariah in verse 18 says, how can this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Then let me give you a little marital advice. An angel appears to you. Don't tell that angel, my wife is old. He knows that already, okay? I mean, here's Zechariah say, hey, I'm old. and Have you seen my wife? I mean, I don't know exactly what down that way, but that's what happened. And I mean, let's say they're in their 50s or 60s. I mean, how many of you ladies 50s or 60s? Angel comes to your husband and says, uh, got good news. Your husband comes home and says, hey, babe, we're going to have a babe. God told me so. What are you going to say, ladies? Are you crazy? You don't touch me. You get out of here. I mean, you know, you know what's going to happen next. I mean, it's like, that's not going to happen. But that's what happened. That's what the, I'm not making this up, guys, in the Bible. It's right there, Luke chapter 1. Then you go to verse 18. He says, how's it going to happen? I'm an old man. Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent by him to speak to you, to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe what I said. And so he looks at Zechariah and says, you're going to be a mute. You're not going to be able to talk until this baby is born. And so the promise is given to this old couple. They're going to have the son they've been praying for. They've got full hearts, empty hands. Finally, the son's going to come. Elizabeth, it says late in the chapter, rejoiced. She believed. He doubted. She rejoiced. And so nine months pass by, the baby comes. And in Jewish tradition, you always named a baby after the family. 
For instance, our guide when we go to Israel is Eris Bar David. Bar means son of in Hebrew. Eris is the son of David. Eris Bar David. And so it was tradition, just as we have my, my last name is DeSalvo, because my dad's last name is DeSalvo, and my son and grandsons are DeSalvos because that's what we do in our country. That's our tradition. That's where we pass on names. So it comes time to name this baby. They've got this bouncing baby boy. It's time to name him. And so they look at Elizabeth and said, well, shall you name What is the child going to be? This is after the eighth day. And he says, uh, he shall be called John. And they start racking their brains. And they said to her, this is, chapter, this is verse 61 of chapter 1, there's nobody among your relatives who's called John. And they start making signs to the father. Now, this is humorous. The guy can't talk, he can't hear, so they're doing sign language. You're going to call your boy, you waited all these years, and you're not going to call your boy Zechariah? You're going to call him John? There's nobody in your family named John. So they said to her, there's no one among your relatives by that name. They made signs to the father, verse 62, so what do you want to call So he took a tablet. He can't talk. He takes a tablet. He begins to write. The Hebrew language goes in the opposite direction. He begins to write. J-O-H-N. Well, he didn't write in English. He wrote in Hebrew. So <laughs> The word John means God is gracious. And you know what Zechariah does? Zechariah, instead of focusing upon his son, whose name would be John the Baptist, focuses upon the Savior, the Messiah. And in verses 68 and following, he says he's raised up in verse 69, the horn of salvation, the house of David. He's shining, verse 79, upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide us into peace. And what Zechariah is saying is, I appreciate my boy, but my boy is here only as a forerunner to the Messiah. And Zechariah didn't miss that first Christmas because although he rejoiced in the birth of his son, he knew of his need of a Savior. Then two more, and I'll stop. Anna and Simeon. They're found in the next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 2. They're old. I mean, they're old. I don't know if they're grandparents, like I'm a grandparent, but they're old. They'll be in this grandparent gig is a good thing. I love Christmas time with grandkids. You, you get your grandkids, you spoil them, give them candy, cookies, cake, give them a puppy and a, and a kitty, and send them home with their parents to deal with it. I mean, it's a, it's a great deal. They're old. And is 84 years old. You, you know what these people do? Every day they go to the temple looking for Messiah. Every day. Simeon had been given a promise by God that he would not die before he saw Messiah. So this young couple comes walking into the temple. It's time for the rite of circumcision. It's the eighth day. And when they come walking in the temple, both Simeon and Anna, God speaks to them. So here he is. Here he is. And so, what does Simeon do? Listen to these words. Now you can take your bondservant and allow him to depart. Simeon said, I can go to glory now. I've seen the Messiah. My eyes have seen salvation. A light of revelation to the Gentile and a glory to the people of Israel. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. This Messiah came not just for the Israelites and the Jewish people. This Messiah came for all of us. 
And here were two older people every day going to the temple and watching and watching and watching and watching. And they saw the Messiah. Simeon, this old octogenarian, holding this baby in his hands. I've seen the light, the Gentiles, and the glory of Israel. You know, when I think of all this, it's an opportunity for us to look back in awe, to live today by faith, and to look ahead with anticipation. I mean, to me, that's the Christmas story. Here's the tragedy. A lot of people in our world will celebrate Christmas without inviting the guest of honor. There'll be no mention of Christ. I mean, not just around the world, but within our nation, within Christian homes. There's not going to be mention of Christ. We're going to open presents. We're going to have big meals. There's not going to be a reading of the Christmas story. There's not going to be a prayer. People consumed with themselves and consumed with stuff because they're not watching and they don't see that the Messiah has come. What are you watching for? See, I'm convinced that uh, you're not going to find it unless you're looking for it. Our grandkids get up and look for that elf on the shelf every day. Flying Sammy man, they don't have a chance. They're going to be found. What are you watching for? See, in our day and age, it's so easy to miss the obvious. We're consumed with everything around us. Consumed with the gifts, consumed with we're watching. We're watching for sales. We're watching for events. We're watching for parties. We're watching for kids' events at school, at church. We're watching. We've got a lot of places to be and a lot of things to do, but you watch for Messiah. It's easy to miss the obvious. I think about a year and a half, two years ago, I used this illustration. It's a story of a guy named Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is a world-renowned violinist. He owns a Stradivarius violin. It's valued at $2.5 million. He played at the Boston Philharmonic one night. And uh, when he played at the Boston Philharmonic, the cheapest ticket you get was 100 bucks. The most expensive ticket was 1500 bucks. The Washington Post decided they would have a little sociological experiment about people missing the obvious. And so they put Josh Bell, Joshua Bell, they put him in a subway metro station, the metro station in Washington, D.C. He holds in his hand a $2.5 million Stradivarius violin. If you'd gone to the Boston Philharmonic three nights before, you'd have paid $100 to $1,500 to get a ticket to listen to him play. He played in that metro station for 45 minutes. There were cameras all over. Over 1,500 people in 45 minutes walked by him. Three people stopped. One, the long, one that stayed alone was a lady with a four-year-old who recognized who he was. He put his violin case out for people to give money in. He picked up $27 in 45 minutes. See, they missed the obvious. They weren't watching for a world-class violinist in a subway station in Washington, D.C. Nobody's looking for Messiah in Bethlehem. Bubba from Buckholz, if you will. And so the world missed him then, and the world misses him now. What are you watching for? Father, we thank you. 
We thank you that unto us a son is born and unto us a son is given. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, you tell us that uh, he is the way, truth, and the life, that there's no way of the Father except through him. Maybe you have been watching for Jesus. Maybe you have been reading about Jesus. Here's my offer to you this morning. Christ came, fully God, fully man, gave his life on your behalf. And forgiveness of sin from this personal God comes when you ask the Savior, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you haven't done that, would you do that this morning? You can pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I desire for forgiveness. I confess to you my need for a Savior. I trust you and you alone for that. And for some of us, many of us, we know Christ as Savior, but we're watching other stuff right now. We haven't had time to focus on him, reflect on him, spend time in the Word. It's just an abbreviated uh, worship service on a Sunday and no more. It's a great opportunity for you to sit before the Father, to thank him for the Son. And then over the next couple of weeks, to celebrate the guest of honor. Make sure he's at every function you have, the invited guest, the Christ of Christmas. Father, thank you. Thank you for teaching us from your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Bless you.